This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. When the media is not talking about COVID, it's talking about Afghanistan. It's the horror that war brings to the people who live in any country. Rachel Givney has written about a different place and a different time. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Jan. Lovely to be here. Rachel, when and where have you set your book, Secrets My Father Kept? Secrets My Father Kept is set in Krakow in Poland in uh, February 1939. So it's about six months before the beginning of World War II. We have Dominic and his daughter, Maria. Maria, well-educated, 17 years old, intelligent, finishing school and would like to go to university. Will she get there? Well, uh, Secrets My Father Kept is a coming-of-age story, and you're right, uh, this character of Marie, 17 years old, um, has been afforded every privilege in life. She's, she's well-educated, she's wealthy, uh, she comes from a loving home uh, with her father, Dominic, and she wants to go and become a doctor, like her father. Her father, Dominic, is a very well-respected physician in town, and she wants to emulate him. Mm-hmm. However, when she uh, applies to go to university, even though she is in possession of a, a mind as brilliant as her father's, she has told very explicitly that um, there is no chance that she's going to study to become a doctor. Um, and it's for quite practical reasons. It's because the people at the university feel that, that why would we waste a place on a person who is just going to leave the profession as soon as she's joined it to marry and start a family. Mm. When Maria was younger, she had a friend. The warmest days of her childhood were spent with this chap and he's just returned to Krakow. This fondness is now replaced by sexual desire stirring. But what's the problem here with Ben Rosen? Well, Marie is Catholic and her beautiful friend, Ben Rosen, uh, Ben is Jewish. And so it was very much frowned upon from both sides, from Catholic sides and from Jewish sides to intermarry. Yeah, of course, this is after Kristallnacht has just happened. But Mm. Ben's family is still well-off Jewish business people. Yes. I think you must have researched this to find a, um, a business that they could still work in and still export. Uh, that's right, yes. So uh, Ben is, well, he, when he returns to Krakow, he's a school teacher, but um, he's actually hiding this huge wealth. He is uh, the heir to the uh, a toy fortune. His mother runs the Bloomfeld Toy Company, which is based on uh, a real company that existed in Germany in 1939. And uh, when I was researching this novel, I found some fascinating facts about um, the status of Jews in Germany at the time. Uh, There were many businesses which were still running because uh, they brought money in for the German Mm -hmm. economy. So this this toy uh, company that it's based on, they had huge import-export contracts with the States, with the UK, and uh, for that company to go bust, the huge import-export duties that uh, Germany, that the German government was uh, making off these companies, 
um, you know, the taxes that you pay when you import export products, that was um, that would be gone to waste. The beautiful teddy bears that um, were popular all over the world, and it's like you know, at Christmas, every child wanted this teddy bear. Um, so the German government couldn't put this um, couldn't put this Jewish business out of business, and they couldn't turn it into a German business into a Gentile business either, because the whole thing was the name. We must have, well, I call it the Nikki Bear. I must have the Nikki Bear from the Bloomfield Toy Company for Christmas. Um, I don't want, a, a, you know, another name. Um, I don't want to bear under another name. So very ironic that these um, these German these Jewish businesses continued under Nazism uh, because they were bringing in money for the German government. Well, we'll leave the sexual tension there and return to the secrets <laughs> my father kept. What did Maria want to know? Like I said before, Marie lives with her father, Dominic, um, who's this wonderful, well-respected physician in town. But they, they both carry this sort of shameful, dark secret, which is that uh, Marie's mother uh, disappeared 15 years ago. And Marie wants to know what, what happened to her. Where did she go? What became of her? And most importantly, why did she leave her? Why did she leave a little baby? And this is the, the main plot of, of Secrets My Father Kept. And standing in Marie's way is, is her father, Dominic. He refuses to talk about what happened because if he does, it's going to change his life and his daughter's life forever. Mm. And Marie doesn't even know the name of her mother. No, that's anyway, right. the story is split into two different times. And this is where we go back to Lvov. So yes. this is where I'd like Rachel Givney to read from page 192. We go back in time to 1918 and we learn about uh, Marie's mother, what she was doing. So this is Lvov, October 1918. Helena Kolokov watched the girl's face and contemplated the unenviable task of saying something to her new employer. She'd worked at Karski's Apothecary for only three weeks, the first paid position of her life. Before this, her only experience in the arena of work was to milk the skinny cows and till the barren earth on her father's God-forsaken farm. Mm, right, so she's got a job, but she has an employer with a problem. What was Mr. Karski's problem? Mr. Karski is very forgetful, she realises, and uh, as she, as we go on, uh, she realises that he actually has Alzheimer's. Yeah. This is the point at which Helena must decide whether she's going to say something and stop him and risk losing her job. She ends up with Mr. Karski teaching her and the importance of the periodic table of all things. So what about Mr. Karski's son? Where's he? Mr. Karski's son is Dominic, is Marie's father. So we see that um, this apothecary that Helena, who's Marie's mother, has started to work in is owned by the father of Dominic, who will, uh, of course, who, of course, she is going to marry. He is fighting in World War I and he's mm -hmm. returned from the World War I battlefields. Well, essentially, he's got PTSD, basically. What in the olden days you called it shell shock. Well, you write about Helena's first sexual encounter, which was written very centrally, and then her labour. Oh, ouch, that was with, read with clenched teeth and crossed legs. Look, back to nicer, more humorous incidents than that. 
We're back in Krakow now, 1939. Marie's father wants her to meet a suitable husband. So what's the dance that she organises for her to go to? This was a, oh, a lovely um, aspect of uh, Polish culture that I discovered in my research. In the time of 1939 and when sort of Nazism and fascism and nationalism was sort of sweeping Europe, every country was sort of looking at their roots and celebrating their, their folk culture. Marie attends a folk dance and everybody are festooned in these gorgeous peasant costumes and um, you'd know them if you, if you see them. They're sort of those um, beautiful sort of peasant blouses with the, the red skirts with the beautiful flowers embroidered on them and the black corsets and the flower crown. And the boys are all in uh, sort of moccasins and um, broadcloth. It's a beautiful visual and it's a very exciting uh, time because, you know, it's the first time that um, these young people are going for a dance and they're going for one reason only, which is to meet a wife or a husband. But one of the things that these beautiful outfits have to be made by the family. So Dominic says, well, I'll make it. I'm I'm a doctor. I'm good at sewing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. And Ben is told to leave. His Polishness is questioned. This is the first time that Marie sees anti-Semitism, but she goes on to experience it even more, even to her own physical harm. But her father, there's a new chief of medicine needed at the hospital, and Dr. Walonski is very proud of his German connections. He wants the job and explains how, if he's appointed, the hospital can make money by not allowing Jewish patients. Quote from the book, Jews spread disease. They make us look bad when they come in half dead and die on us. They bring our numbers down. But there's another doctor, Dr. Johnny Gurner, who whose father had played tennis with Goring. He explains why Dr. Karski, Marie's dad, would make a better director and bring in more money. This was interesting. What was his angle? What I wanted to show with this was that there was a huge scope of, of views on anti-Semitism in Poland. Um, and it's like in, in any country, in any time, there are always people who are going to be racist and there are always going to be people who are not racist, who are good people, who are liberals. Johnny, who's this sort of swashbuckling do- doctor that comes in and befriends Dominic, he actually uh, comes from a family, a very very old Prussian family. Prussia is um, we used to be sort of a part of Germany. Well, Johnny's father actually is, is a Nazi himself, and Johnny has seen the ugliness of that, and he knows that not the way to be. And actually, it's not it's not the way to um, make money. You, you're not going to you're going to make less money if you if you exclude people from from your hospital. So in the sort of broadest mercenary terms, excluding uh, Jewish people from the hospital, it's just bad for business. And Dominic himself is, of course, a humanist. And while he's he's harboring this very dark secret, he, he just wants to help everyone. So he realises that the only way he's going to be able to stop this horrible policy of excluding Jews from the hospital is to become the chief himself. And also, he's developed some medicines. Yes. So let's hear from page number 18. For the past 11 years, Dominic had conducted a secret love affair with bacteria. 
the new animals that were smaller than a pin's head but could fell an elephant. He admired their power and he studied their curious movements across walls and tissues, down arteries and into veins. He even spoke to them sometimes in his laboratory when the nurses had all gone home. You're a clever one, he'd say to a gram-positive Staphylococcus cell. <laughs> so this development of new medicines is going to probably yes. make the hospital even more money. There's some really interesting other aspects in this book. The lizard brain, the fight, <laughs> flight, feeding, fornication and fear, not empathy, compassion, humour, love, friendship or selflessness. So what do you need for self-preservation? This, the lizard brain was really interesting. So that's something you researched? I come from a family of doctors. So I had a sort of a great head start in finding out about all of these things. And I've always had a, an interest in medicine because it's what my parents do. You sort of learn when you're studying neurology that humans, we operate on several different planes. And at our most basic part of our brain is the, the limbic system, which some people call the lizard brain. Basically, you're just your most basic instincts. There are people out there who just operate on their basic instincts. They're just out for survival. They're just out for self-preservation. And Dominic realises that this other rival doctor at the the hospital that he works um, has really no talent (laughs) for medicine and is uh, terrible to his patients and isn't a very good physician or diagnostician. And uh, he realises that uh, all this person wants is sort of fame and power. And he's going to get that using whatever means necessary. And if that means finding out Dominic's secret and using it to blackmail him, he's going to do it. Even using Marie to help. Poland in 1939, with the background of anti-Semitism and the imminent Nazi invasion, Maria is absorbed in finding the whereabouts of her mother in Secrets My Father Kept by Rachel Givney. Thank you, Rachel. My pleasure. Thanks, Jan. And now it's David's turn. Against the tide of historical cataclysms, Wes Cunningham, a young Quaker, navigates his course through life in Robert Hillman's novel, The Bride of Almond Tree. So, Robert, welcome to 3CR. Thanks very much, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Being a Quaker is central to this novel. What does that actually entail, being a Quaker? Well, being a Quaker, you committed to nonviolence as a way of solving problems. The commitment to nonviolence is crucial. And the book is set in a small central Victorian community of Almond Tree. And there's a very small uh, community of Quakers living in Almond Tree. But there's never been very many Quakers anywhere. But their beliefs were what attracted me to making Wes a Quaker. He's not a terribly good Quaker. And I have noticed that there are certain beliefs of amongst Quakers contiguous with the beliefs of Marxists. They're both, for instance, interested in dealing with poverty and creating a better life for working people. What you have here is the quote, Quakers believe that God gives each Quaker a task in life. And once he or she understands that task, it's permanent. And that in many ways drives the novel because we have two characters in particular, Wes and his sister, Patty, both Quakers, who in many ways are pitted against history. 
Wes wants to marry Beth, and this is where that notion of Marxism comes in. Beth is an avid communist. But is this more youthful enthusiasm, do you think? She has been tutored in, in Marxism by a teacher at her high school, and her teacher uh, begins to, in a way, sort of uh, educate her about Marxism. And she takes to it with great gusto until by the age of 18, she is a, an avid Marxist. And she's grown up with uh, Wes in, uh, in this small town. But from the very start, there is a type of a link between Quakerism and Marxism. Now, I wanted to create an impediment to the relationship of Wes and Beth. Wes is deeply attracted to Beth, who in the time that he's been aware of war has grown into a young woman. He wants to court her, but she, without being cruel about it, laughs and says, no, 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 Wes, I'm, I'm not about to marry anybody ever. My commitment is to Marxism. Beth, in fact, finds herself entrapped and labelled a spy in what is Menzies Australia, and Menzies was actually uh, trying to get the Communist Party banned, and she finds herself then, uh, after a series of events, in Moscow, traded for another spy. As the story unfolds, yes, that does happen. Wes and uh, uh, Beth remain close friends. Uh, Wes hopes one day to marry Beth, and uh, Beth relies on Wes every now and again to help her in one way or another, putting up posters around the town of Almond Tree for advertising for people to donate to uh, a fund that uh, buys sheepskins for Russia, for instance, which was an actual thing that really did happen. And um, one of our other projects is that, and this is where MI6 comes into the, the book, she um, agreed to photograph the sites at which it was rumoured the British would be testing nuclear weapons uh, in South Australia, where um, uh, the British are rumoured to be about to test atomic weapons very soon. It's a sting operation set up by MI6. And so when Beth comes back with the photographs and hands them over to uh, a person who's supposed to be a, a representative of the... Uh, uh, the Soviet Union and the Communist Party. It turns out that she's handing him over to MI6 and uh, she's arrested as a spy. This then is a little bit of an impediment to Wes and Beth's relationship. But moving on, we have Wes's sister, Patty. And Patty is a nurse in Hiroshima and she finds herself compelled to stay. But what's interesting here, I think, is she meets a Buddhist monk and there's an affinity in some ways in terms of belief. And I want to read a brief encounter that took place. The master, still holding the baby, led Patty to the stable where Hero, the horse, was enclosed. He opened the gate and beckoned Patty in. Then he lifted Hero's tail, rubbed his rump, and Hero produced three clumps of dung. This is paradise, said the master. What do you call this in English? Dung, or more crudely, shit. What we turn away from is closer to paradise than what we study closely. Dung is Zen. The apple is Zen. You cannot leave Hiroshima. She didn't know 
It was possible that the master was mad. Dung was zen. At the train station, a woman came up to her and looked at Esther, waving her ugly hands about in her pram and whispered into Patty's ear, accursed. In the mood she was in, it was too much. She reached out and grabbed the woman's throat and squeezed until the woman fell to her knees. Apologize, you bitch. She spoke in Japanese. The woman couldn't speak because she was being strangled. Patty relaxed her grip on the woman's throat. Apologize. The woman coughed out. Sorry, sorry, madam. By the time she reached home, Patty's mind was made up. She would stay. The children would stay. Esther would suffer, but she would survive. Patty would continue to run the hospital, which was now hers. For me, this passage, in fact, encapsulates a lot of what's going on in the novel. There's potential for violence, even amongst Quakers. There's that commitment to others. But also then there's a whole question of suffering that is shared in many ways and that people have to go through. And all of this is in, contained in that passage. Was that your intent? Yes, it was, David, and uh, uh, very astute of you to have noticed. Yes, that was my intent. By this time, of course, Patty had begun her nonviolent volunteer work because she was a nurse by training uh, in New Guinea. After the war, there was a Commonwealth occupation force set up to occupy Hiroshima. This is 1946, and the radiation is still pretty lethal. But Patty thinks this is her task that God has given her. The, the one thing, not a thousand things, it's just this one thing. And once you realise it, you can't change it. You have to continue with it. She does continue with it and she um, eventually meets the Japanese in Hiroshima and there are scenes, whole chapters devoted to Hiroshima and the aftermath of the atomic bomb. Patty refers to it as America's Auschwitz. But it also suggests then that there is still suffering that continues that has to in fact be shared by Patty's children. Yes, it is shared by Patty's children in a way because uh, Patty becomes married in, to, to a Japanese doctor in uh, Hiroshima um, they, and uh, they have two children. Uh, both the children have uh, suffered from, uh, in the womb from uh, uh, radiation sickness um, and one of them, the little girl that you're just speaking about, Esther, who was in the pram and waving her hands about. Esther is born with webbed fingers, fingers that have uh, joined and they have to be operated on and they always remain ugly. So there is suffering. The children suffer because of, uh, because of uh, Patty's uh, decision to have children with a Japanese doctor in Hiroshima. Another question then is really how do individuals stand up against history in many ways? Patty is trying to almost take on Hiroshima and the nuclear holocaust. Wes and Beth are almost taking on communism and the Soviet Union, and yet they are only individuals competing against these gigantic forces. Yes, they are. But I think that uh, anybody who has a powerful commitment to making the world a better place has to recognise that there's only a very, a very, very limited amount that you can do. Patty, having once 
realize that the special task that God has given her is to attend to the, the appalling aftermath of life in Hiroshima amongst the Japanese. That can be compared to Beth's commitment to Marxism. Now, gradually, Beth begins to look at Marxism in a more critical way. In other words, she begins to change. And it's in the change that she becomes more and more attracted to Wes, who comes to Moscow to visit her. And the question then is, will Wes and Beth be able to get together? But we will leave that for the reader and the listener to find out. The novel ends on an interesting note. The Quaker belief, love one another or die. Is that force strong enough? It sounds so simple. It's not a Quaker belief. It comes from a poem by W.H. Auden. He writes, we must love one another or die at the conclusion of her stanza. Beth is sceptical about, you know, the, this, this, this line from Auden's poem, we must love one another or die. And she thinks, on the face of it, it doesn't seem true. You can't just love everybody. But she asks Wes about it. She says, what do you think, Wes? You must love one another or die. Is that what Quakers believe? And Wes says, yes, yes, that's what we believe. We must love one another or die. Even though Wes is not a terribly observant Quaker, uh, he recognises that uh, this, this, in a way, this can summarise a number of Quaker beliefs. We must love one another or die. And the reader is left to ponder it and ask themselves, does this seem to be true? Well, in order for the reader to appreciate the sentiments and beliefs of the Quakers, they need to read the novel The Bride of Almond Tree. The author is Robert Hillman, and it's a text publishing release. So, Robert, thank you very much for talking with me today. It was a great pleasure, David. Thank you very much. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.